like they they advertise one match by crashing a car into one of the wrestlers. Not a total victory of Russia, which now we're seeing. This he goes on. Gigantic bag of flaccid dicks. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Which, when you open them up, you find out that they're all cockroaches inside. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. No, I don't know if anybody else is ever going to laugh this hard at anything we Probably. say. Uh, we can actually both look out my window right now and see some very pretty yellow flowers that I'm going to be eradicating. This is a geek history of time, where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm still not Ed, I'm Damien. Uh, my name's Damien Harmony, Ed uh, Blaylock is away on assignment this week, uh, for a second week in a row. Uh, I am a Latin teacher, I am a history teacher, uh, I am the proud parent of a seven and a half year old who is starting to get into kung fu movies and of a 10-year-old who finds Lego video games to be the highest art that there is. And across from me, who are you? Hi, I'm also not Ed. I am Ashley Sanders. I am a trivia host. That's probably my favorite thing right now that I am, so we're not going to get into the other stuff. Uh, and I host a weekly pub quiz at Yellow Brewing Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Nice. So last time we talked... Uh, we were getting into the uh, philosophical underpinnings of the Dark Crystal. That's right. The famous Muppet movie uh, from the early 80s that was not the Muppets. Um, which is interesting because I, I just realized that uh, there was the Muppets, but then there were also the Fraggles. Were you ever privy to the Fraggles? I am not, but I recognize them as a staple of Gen X pop culture. Yeah, they are. They really are. Uh, they were essentially the Muppets on acid. Um, and they they lived in a wall, and it was it, it was really cool actually. It was, it was really fun lessons. Um, uh, they, they had like a moral to the story. As I recall, the Fraggles were on HBO, um, but I might be mixing that up with the Muppet Show. Either way, I didn't have access to it growing up, uh, unless I went to my grandma's house. Uh, but um, but then I found the discs somewhere, and so I have all of Fraggle Rock um, on disc somewhere in this house. Is that on your uh, Tinder bio? <laughs> I don't have a Tinder bio, <laughs> but if I ever did, you're going to help me write it. All right. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave the Fraggle Rock out. <laughs> oh. No, we'll put it Maybe in. not. Oh. Uh, I don't oh. know. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you know, wanting a partner like a Muppet's not a bad idea. I mean, the mouths open really wide. Their hands jerk back and forth really fast. <laughs> they dance. They're uh, open to suggestion. Exactly. You know, I can't see my feet. You can't see Muppet feet. Like, it all, it, I don't know. To me, it works. Is Fraggle Rock Jim Henson? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, Jim Henson did The Muppets, right? He did The Muppets Show. Uh, he did uh, Sesame Street, uh, which is more Muppets. Um, he did Fraggle Rock, which was like working class hippie Muppets. Um, he also did a show that I can't remember the name of anymore. Uh, so, uh, Geek folk uh please tell us what the name of it is where like it was a, a a guy who found death but he also found a magic bag and he had the magic bag jump into it, it, like if you said what is this and a person looked at it and said it is a bag they'd have to get into it and so then he found death and he he at death came for him he's like oh well, what's this and death's like oh that's a bag and and he stuffed death in the bag and then he ran around the world and death didn't exist, and so like nobody's dying, and it's getting overpopulated, and he realizes the value of death, and and it was like this guy telling a story to a Muppet dog by a fire, 
I don't know how many episodes it was even, but he did that for a brief time. And then he did uh, the, the Dark Crystal, which was kind of, in, in some ways, his Muppet magnum opus. Uh, because, again, it was a movie that was entirely um, live-action Muppets. Like, there, there was no uh, human in that movie. Like, the whole world was devoid of humanity. Um, sadly, it also meant that the characters were largely one-dimensional. Uh, but um, last time we talked about, uh, like I said, the physical underpinnings of the Dark Crystal. Uh, I want to really dive into the the historical context in which it was written because it's kind of a hallmark of what we do on this show. Um, are you ready to get really, really depressed about the state of the world? I am. Awesome. Because uh, nothing ever changes ever. Um, so it's 1975. You might remember that uh, Jim Henson is snowed in and writing a 25-page treatment of the Dark Crystal. Uh, also in 1975, there's a hotel attack in Tel Aviv. It's called uh, a hotel attack, like, specifically. And uh, you know where Tel Aviv is? It's... It's... Uh, no. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's kind of the commerce center of uh, Israel, okay? It's their version of New York. Um, uh, and so uh, it, it's on a coast. Uh, and uh, the Palestinian fighters take over a hotel on the coast, and they took hostages. Uh, Israeli soldiers stormed the hotel to end the situation, to end this occupation. Five hostages were freed. Eight died. And, and that's the thing I kind of want to point out early on. In most of these, bystanders get killed. It's, it's, it's not like... And they managed to save everyone. No, very often at least two or three people are going to die in the process. And it becomes like this weird attrition of like, well, it was still successful because we killed all the bad guys from the Israeli point of view. And for the Palestinians, it was still successful because we made the world pay attention to what's going on. Well, when both sides are walking away from a conflict where people died going, well, that was a success. I wish we'd gotten more. It's not going to de-escalate anytime soon. So... Uh, eight died. Three Israeli soldiers died. Um, the Palestinian fighters were all killed except for one who got put on trial. Uh, they, later on uh, that same year, a Palestinian refrigerator bomb uh, on Ben Yehuda Street, it was, it was a main street, uh, killed 15 Israeli civilians and it injured 77 more. So you have a hotel attack, you have a, a bombing. Okay, and it's it's not a I'm throwing a bomb at you. It's I I set up a bomb and I walked away from it, so you don't know where in the environment the bomb's coming from or anything. Which means at any moment this could happen. It it really is a form of terror, um, but it's a politically motivated form of terror uh, by a people who, thirty years previously had their own land and now they don't. Uh, Cafe Nave, uh, and I might be mispronouncing it, uh, on Jaffa Road was bombed in 1975 that killed seven Israelis and it injured 45 more. Um, and this was three days after United uh, Nations General Assembly Resolution 3379, um, which uh, was a really important one uh, that stated that, quote, Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. Are you aware of what Zionism is? Zionism, mm -hmm. as in um, Judaism, but being both a nationality and a religion. 
kind of it's more the idea that um there is a a home land uh that is uh partly the goal and uh the the possession of it and protection of it is paramount um and if i'm understating it or if i'm uh misconstruing it somebody please correct me um but uh, the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 3379 also stated that, quote, international cooperation and peace require the achievement of national liberation and independence, the elimination of colonialism and neocolonialism, foreign occupation, Zionism, apartheid, and racial discrimination in all its forms, as well as the recognition of the dignity of peoples and their rights to self-determination. Now, this is the United Nations, of which Israel is a member, of which Palestine is not a full member. They are an observing member. They were given special status uh, right around this time. Um, but uh, they're calling out apartheid, which at that time in South Africa was a real thing, too. Um, it's rare that you see resolutions like this get passed or get done because of who sits on the UN Security Council. Uh, and there are five permanent members of it who always have a veto and they can just cancel anything, which at the time the UN was created, it was a good idea. But in practice, it, it turns out it, it kind of nerfs what the United Nations is there for. Um, but they got that through and it, it called out those things specifically, which is a real good thing for Palestinians because they're getting recognized and what's happening to them is getting recognized. At the same time, three days later, there's a bombing. Which, it's very easy for people to think of these as two monolithic groups. Um, there is uh, a political party in Israel who want to go way further than, than they're going, even currently. Uh, there, is a, there is a large contingent, contingent of Israelis who actually think that, you know, we need to actually be, be good to the Palestinians and give them their land back. There's, there's plenty of different people across the spectrum there. Same thing's true uh, in Palestine. There are people who are uh, doves, who are, are who are in favor of peace. Uh, they keep getting murdered by people who, uh, well, in the 70s, they especially kept getting murdered by people who said no peace. So there's, there's a lot of uh, variables uh, on both sides, which makes sense. These are people, you know, and people are going to have different responses. That's the year in which Henson wrote the first part of his Dark Crystal story. Those things are going on. In that place. Now, I don't know that he was looking at the TV and going, I'm going to use, oh, okay, now we're going to make a Muppet about that. But that is in the ether. Okay, it is a big deal. Okay. Uh, on June 27th, 1976, the Palestinian fighters hijacked Air France Flight 139. Have you heard of this? No. Okay, so um, I think Chuck Norris was in a movie about it once. Uh, I have not seen any Chuck Norris. You movies. are better for it. Uh, <laughs> it's they're they're the same movie over and over. Um, I think there was another movie about it. I remember watching it when I was like twelve, and it was it was a little upsetting. Um, Air Air France Flight One Thirty Nine going from Tel Aviv to Athens, Georgia. Not Athens, Georgia. What the? F <laughs> they're going to see an REM concert. It was great. Is you know the B fifty twos were opening for them. It was it was wonderful. God damn. Uh, Athens, uh, Greece. That's the place. Uh, now, uh, the Palestinians got on in, in Athens because a Palestinian getting on board a plane in, in Tel Aviv is going to go through four or five hours of security screenings, right? 
There were over 200 passengers on this uh, plane, including four Palestinian hijackers and 12 crew members. Okay, the people who make the plane go. Uh, most of the passengers and the crew were Israeli and or Jewish. And I do make that distinction because the Palestinians ended up separating people according to religion. And I'll get into that. But first and foremost, they were from the state of Israel. Therefore, they're Israeli citizens. Now, the PFLP, which is called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, was aided by two West German leftist revolutionaries in the effort. So they weren't acting alone. They got these West Germans. Okay, so West uh, at this time, it's 1970s, Germany is divided starkly into two places, East Germany and West Germany. And Berlin is divided by the Berlin Wall into East Berlin and West Berlin. Um, and uh, there are West German leftists, people who want communism to take over in West Germany, even though West Germany is held by uh, Americans, uh, mostly by America, but with British and French help as well, like the Europeans on the West. Um, the East is held by the communists, right? And so there's a lot of back and forth stuff. There's a lot of spy movies about this stuff. It's, it's fascinating and interesting. Um, and it's just layers upon layers of just like, People playing very deadly games, unfortunately. But uh, there are these two West German leftist revolutionaries uh, that helps these Palestinians. Um, they diverted the plane from Athens, because I think it was supposed to go from Athens to France, uh, Paris. Um, they diverted it to Benghazi, Libya. Okay, now at the time, Libya was under the control of Muammar Gaddafi, uh, a man who is fairly hostile to the British, uh, and to the United States uh, because of their policies uh, in, in the Arab world. They refueled there, and they went to, uh, I'm going to probably butcher the name, Entebbe, uh, Uganda. Okay, um, And at Entebbe, they were joined by four more hijackers um, and got support from the dictator of Uganda at the time, Idi Amin. Now, you've heard of him, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they got moved to an unused terminal on that airport, um, and Idi Amin would visit them daily. So he's visiting the hijackers and the prisoners, okay? And he kept telling the, the, uh, the passengers uh, who had been hijacked that he was going to negotiate their release. So he's kind of puffing himself up as a hero. Now, he himself is uh, Muslim. He himself is very sympathetic to the Palestinians, uh, very anti-British, very anti-American, which is very interesting because he was actually trained by the British growing up. Uh, that's why, and he was kind of a bigger dude, and that's why he got to be so brutal was because he had British training. Um, and he's promising to negotiate the release. Okay, so this is like a four-day thing. Okay, uh, I I've had layovers that were like extended from three hours to being a a day. And I was really cranky. And I got to go sit in a hotel and take a shower. I didn't have people pointing guns at me or anything. Now, I did have a bunch of teenagers with me, and that's its own personal help. But uh, <laughs> but I wasn't being visited by Idi Amin. I didn't have people uh, who wanted me to die uh, sitting. Well, I, maybe I did. I don't know. I ate a lot of stroop waffle that day. Um, <laughs> but uh, I can only imagine what these people were dealing with. Uh, now, like a lot, a lot of hostage takings of this type, the 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 whole point of it, and this is actually in some ways what led to 9/11 happening the way it did. Hostage taking and hijacking was was a somewhat new thing in the 70s, but 
by the 1990s and 2000s, there was a handbook on how to deal with it practically. And it was just give them what they want. Just let them land the plane. Then we'll negotiate. Do not resist. Don't, don't do anything. Just go along with it because most of the time they take you hostage so that they can get their friends released. And that's what they were doing. Uh, these Palestinians were trying to get the release of other Palestinians being held by Israel's government. Um, also, ransom. If you're, if you're an insurgent group, you need money. They get the help of Ugandan soldiers, um, at which, I mean, he's supposed to be negotiating their release, and he's sending in his soldiers to help out these Palestinian hijackers. And they start separating people specifically based on citizenship and religion. You can do that when you have everybody's passports. And if I'm correct, this was the one where there was a stewardess who, uh, while they were flying, she gathered as many passports as she could and flushed them down the toilet uh, because she was trying to save people's lives. Now, I might be mixing it up with another time where that did happen, but one of these times there was a woman who, she was a badass. Um, Israelis go to one group and everyone else goes to the other. Okay, but they also added to the group of Israelis um, two ultra-Orthodox Jewish couples uh, who are not Israeli, um, and a French resident who had citizenship in Israel, but he was living abroad in France. Amongst these uh, people who were added was a Holocaust survivor. So again, put yourself in that position. You are 30 years removed from the Holocaust you are going to what is now a, a safe haven homeland for your people who were, they tried to eliminate you and you end up getting hijacked and separated for that. Like the amount of fucking trauma that that must have induced. Like it's, it's just, people were made of much sterner stuff than I. Um, they did miss a couple, however, uh, which again, you know, when when you're hijacking, you can't sit there with a clipboard and be, oh, I I did did anybody's name start with A again? You know, was it you know? Um, now on now all of it started on June 27th. On June 30th, they released 48 non-Israeli hostages from there, and a couple of days later, they released another hundred non-Israeli hostages, and they told the Air France crew, "You can go too," and the Air France crew said no. They're going to oh. stay with these people. Yeah. Meanwhile, Israel had been, they they had connections because Israeli contractors uh, were, there were some construction workers doing work in um, Uganda. And they were well aware of the layout of the airport. And they uh, consulted with the Israeli government and they created a mock-up of what, what it was going to look at look like and they conducted exercises and trained up an entire group of uh Mossad soldiers Mossad is like the special forces special they're like the delta force of of Israel um and they came up with a very well planned well coordinated uh raid uh that they unleashed on the hijacking um one of the lead the leader of this group was a guy named uh Yonatan Netanyahu does that name ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's brother, which is one of the reasons why Netanyahu was such a hardliner on Palestine and on Israel, because his brother died in this raid. He was a colonel, I think, at the time. And he was like this p- 
poet fighter legend like by the time he was 28 like he was just this the scion of badassery his parents were intellectuals i mean he was i mean it was just like everything that israel wanted to be was encapsulated in that man in a lot of ways um so uh he was one of the only uh israeli soldiers to die in the rescue effort they rescued 102 hostages and only 10 of them were wounded pretty good Three were killed in the crossfire. Again, there's always an attrition rate here. Um, one of them, uh, one of the people uh, that wasn't saved was neither killed nor wounded. Her name was Dora Block. Um, she's a British citizen, and she got left behind in Uganda. Because I think what it was was she'd pretended to have a UTI or something like that, or she, she pretended to have a diabetic stroke. I forget exactly what it was. Seems to have had something to do with urine, though, because I just made, named two things that PP has a lot to do with. Um, but um, she ended up getting uh, taken off the plane and, and attended to. So she's in a hospital while all of this raid happens, so she doesn't get rescued. Um, and she's, uh, like I said, a British citizen, but she has family in Israel. Amin, Idi Amin, was pissed that Israel conducted this raid. And in revenge, he killed her. Oh. Yeah. And he killed some of her doctors and nurses because they were like, no, dude, you can't do that. That's our patient. Blow them all away. Um, he was angry, not so much that they conducted the raid, but that they did it without his permission. But they couldn't really trust him. Now, this murder of Dora Block was the catalyst that leads to the British cutting off relations with Uganda until after Idi Amin dies. Because they're like, okay, that's it. We're done with you. Um, that leads to Idi Amin, of course. His response is he called himself the conqueror of the British Empire. You can't fire me, I quit. You know, uh, And also the king of Scotland. Which is why that movie... Yes. Yeah. Have you seen that movie? I have. I that have is some movie. disturbing shit. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, it's obviously it's a fiction. Um, the the author put himself in the story. Uh, I've seen a Reagan biography go the same way. Um, <laughs> he's he Reagan's less of a shit than Idi Amin was, but only by degree. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's like that that hijacking is what led, and that was late in Idi Amin's uh, life or in his uh, sorry in his tenure because a few years later he'd be ousted. Anyway, that's most of July nineteen seventy six. Um, the Dark Crystal is, is eh, crystallizing uh, <laughs> in Henson's and Odell's minds. Um, in 1977, Israeli special forces killed PLO representatives, uh, the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So you have uh, multiple groups of Palestinians trying to liberate Palestine. Um, the PLO is kind of the the name the, the main brand. Okay, um, One of them was in Paris, France, and he gets killed by Israeli uh, special forces. So Israel is going overseas and killing people without due process and without trial okay most of the time they're they're killing small groups of of activists fighters uh what they would call terrorists sometimes though there's kids and women uh that, that get in the way in 1978 you start to see splinter groups besides the popular front uh and the plo and there's some internecine killing amongst these groups so now they start fighting each other uh, did you ever see The Life of Brian? I didn't, know. Oh, okay. So there's this wonderful scene in Life of Brian where it's the people's front of Judea and they they want to get the Romans out of there. And then there's also the Judean people's front, which they want to get the Romans out of there. 
And then there's the popular people's front of Judea. And they want to get the Romans out of there. But the one thing they hate more than the Romans is each other. And the whole time they're just fighting amongst each other instead of fighting against uh, the Romans. And to the point where they both conduct a raid on a Roman villa. And they notice that they're both there and they start fighting each other. And somebody's like, no, no, we should, you know. They're the people's front of Judea and the Judean people's front. They're fighting. And they're like, no, no, no. We should fight the real enemies. They're like, the popular front? Fuck them. <laughs> and it's like, no, the Romans. Oh, right, right, right. So you start to um, see where the Monty Python's getting their jokes, too. Um, some people didn't take too kindly to Yasser Arafat. You've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He had an olive branch that he extended in 1974 um, as, as a policy. So... At that time, he was considered somewhat dovish. Okay, um, <clears throat> now because of this uh, splintering, groups are starting to outdo each other now. Okay, uh, they're starting to escalate the killings. They're starting to escalate the targeting, and they're starting to escalate the frequency. Um, March of 1978, there is a bus attack by a group called the Fatah or Fatah. Uh, that's a branch of the PLO that preferred deadly efforts. Um, they hijacked a bus. They killed 38 Israelis, one American. I think he was a, uh, a photographer. And they wounded 76. It's a big goddamn bus. Yeah. Um, among, but they had public transit, so it must be nice. Um, among the dead were 13 children, though. The Israeli government's response to this was a couple days later. They invaded part of Lebanon. Straight up invaded a neighbor country because... Palestinians were there on the border and they were getting help. They were specifically, those Palestinians were, were helping Fatah um, in Lebanon. And so this creates about 100,000 Palestinian refugees. So there's a bus that gets blown up. Uh, 13 children die. 38 Israelis and an American die. 76 are wounded. <clears throat> I can't imagine the amount of terror that this is. But like... The response of the Israeli government is to invade a neighboring country. Uh, and again, they saw a very real threat there. Um, they killed at minimum 300 Palestinian and Lebanese fighters and civilians. And they made 100,000 refugees, like three days later. So, I mean, there's so much scarring going on on both sides. There's so much escalation. There's so much. And like I said, this is, uh, what year did I say this was? This is 70, 78. 78, yeah. It's not, peace is nowhere in sight. Now, amid all this, Menachem Begin, he is the prime minister of Israel, and Anwar Sadat, who is the dictator of Egypt, were trying to back-channel some negotiations. So... In 1967, there was something called the Six-Day War. I don't exactly remember why, something about how long it lasted being near six days or something. Uh, but um, when Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq attacked Israel, Israel whooped them hard in six days. Some of it was because the groups didn't get along, and then there were guys that were corrupt in each of their armies who were selling off parts of the... So that by the time it got to the front, it was unloaded. It was just insane. Israel took the Sinai Peninsula, that little part between Egypt and Israel, um, they took the Gaza Strip, the West Bank of the Jordan River, and Golan Heights. Okay, um, So when I was growing up, that was largely all Israel holdings, but those were all named areas that were, they were trying to resettle and, and, and get things going. It was a huge embarrassment to the Arab world because they'd 
four of them jumped in and got beat back so bad. They not only got beat back, but they lost all their land. Not all their land, but a lot. Um, in some ways, that 1967 embarrassment led to what happened in Munich. Now, also, Munich was uh, was started by, you know, there's the PLO doing it, but it's like, we got to do something. Like, Israel just beat the crap out of everyone. We got to keep on people's minds what's happening to the Palestinians. Um, the Yom Kippur War that I'd mentioned uh, and everything else the PLO was trying, some of this is just in direct response to what happened in 1967. Um, and the PLO was being funded by those same Arab states that would rather not lose a war so badly. <laughs> Um, and lose more territory. Like, they learned their lesson. Like, oh shit, Israel plays to keep. And they expanded after having been attacked. And there's some question as to whether or not they provoked the war because you know, you've got two groups that hate each other. They run right up to the border and start yelling and just conflagration. But um, but uh, those, those four Arab states definitely attacked Israel and Israel definitely in six days took a bunch of territory from them. So Sadat wants that territory back. He's the guy that's in charge of Egypt. He wants the territory back, um, and he's trying to talk to Begin, but they don't like each other at all. Um, and so they're in semi-secret negotiations with Jimmy Carter going into 1978. Now, Jimmy Carter was president when I was born. Okay, um, Who was president when you were born? President when I was born, that would be uh, Daddy Bush. Okay, first Bush. Um, so two presidents before him. Okay. Um, uh, did you hear that, Ed? She she was born when when Bush was president. <laughs> so that's what he gets for being on assignment. I'll replace him with somebody younger. Uh, but um, so Jimmy Carter, he's a one-term president. Uh, he actually kind of told the truth about what was going on. He t- he had this famous general malaise speech where he's just like, uh, "The state of our union is not strong." He said that. Like, you're not supposed to say that. We like our illusions. And he was like, no, no, it's, it's fucked up around here. Um, and he was right. Uh, the world was a fucked up place. He also put solar panels on the uh, White House. Which Reagan took down. Yes. I used, to, I used to have a picture of Reagan sitting up there with, with a sledgehammer or with a pick. I forget exactly what. Um, with a bunch of CEOs behind him. And I think Lee Iacocca was one of them, uh, who is the head of, I think, GM or Chrysler, who famously said shit like, we need to think about how much fresh air we really need, though. It was a quaint time. Uh, oh, well, I mean, uh, it's better than today. Yeah, that's that's the worst part. Uh, but yeah, Reagan took those down. Jimmy Carter was a very... Jimmy Carter owned a business, and uh, he realized that if I'm president, I don't want anybody even thinking that I'm going to benefit from this business. So he sold his family farm that had been his family for like three generations. He was a peanut farmer from Georgia. He sold it rather than let people think that he was in any way going to be corrupt about you know a, a business holding and using the president of the uh, the the office of the president to enrich his businesses, like yeah, what a notion, right? It was a quaint time. <laughs> it was a simpler time. Uh, I'm dying inside. Oh man. So, going into 1978, Jimmy Carter brings Sadat and Begin to Camp David. Okay, uh, not Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Mar-a-Lago was offered to Jimmy Carter, and he said no. The person tried to leave it to him. Uh, to make it, if I don't quite remember all of it, but um, they said, oh, we want it to be like the Camp David of, of the South. And he said, no, straight up no. It was just, 
no, no thanks. Um, but he did his mini version of shuttle diplomacy. I think it was called one document diplomacy. I, cause I remember listening to an interview with him talk about it. Uh, it was, I think it was on the, uh, the anniversary of it. And what he would do is he would get this document and he, he mostly talked to their advisors, by the way. Um, and, and froze the two of them out. Cause he's like, no, no, you're on timeout. Fuck off. Cause they couldn't even be in the same room together. So they're in different bungalows. Right. Um, and he is walking this document back and forth. And he says, here's what Sadat wants. Do you agree to this? Begin would say, I agree to this, but not these three things. And he, okay, you cross it off. What do you want? Write them in. He would then take that to Sadat. Here's what Begin is agreeing to. Here are the things that he wants. Here are the things that he doesn't want. Check yes, no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> do you like me? You know, it's that kind of, he's going around with a cootie catcher, basically. Uh, and he's going back and forth and back and forth. And his uh, national security advisor, which was the big new Brzezinski, I think, Mika Brzezinski's dad, um, he told him, like, hey, man, don't don't waste all your political capital on this. Because if it goes bad, we're going to look bad. America's going to look bad. And you're not going to get reelected. And Carter was like, no, we got we to gotta do this. This is a thing that's important. He cared less about the political effects of it to his own presidency than he cared about getting it done. It was crazy. I know. This is a quaint <laughs> time. It was a beautiful time. Um, the two men hated each other so much, like I said, they couldn't be in the same room. Carter uh, was a third party that both men could agree upon and respect. Um, and he also... Uh, <laughs> um, he had the added bonus of the fact that neither of them wanted the Soviet Union to get involved. Okay, so back then we didn't work so closely with the Russians to give them territory in in Southwest Asia, um, and uh, he also told them though flat out, if you don't get along, I'm going to take away all our aid that we give you, and the Soviets can have you. I'm going to tell Dad, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, and like I said, he, he barely even dealt with them. He actually took them to Gettysburg at one point, though. And he just walked around the grounds of Gettysburg with them. And that was enough. And they were like, oh, okay, we get it, dude. You had a civil war. It tore you <laughs> apart. We get it. So he goes back and forth to most of the people on their staff. And then he goes to them for final approval on things, right? Um, Sadat and Begin are also um, noticing that there's an increased extremism and increased anti-Israeli sentiment. Um, in the Arab world. And Sadat realizes that that's actually bad for him too. Because if he's not extreme enough, then he's under threat. I mean, he's a dictator. He's a military dictator. He's a colonel. Most military dictators are only colonels. They're hardly ever generals. Um, that's Well, that's not true. In the Arab world, they're mostly colonels. In South America, they're mostly generals. Just a weird thing. Um, but uh, Israel obviously didn't like the anti-Israeli sentiment. Uh, for, for existential reasons. But Sadat was worried, um, which was, he was probably right to be worried because two years later he got uh, killed by extremists while he's on the parade ground. Like they jump out of a, 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 a convoy truck as it's going by on parade uh, and they shoot him and th they throw like 10 grenades at him. And yeah, it's, it's bad. So the agreement that they signed gave back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt and it also recognized the right to self-government for the Palestinians on the West Bank and on the Gaza Strip. So Israel is giving back what they took. And they're recognizing 
and I think in some ways this is the first time that they're recognizing the Palestinians, any Palestinians' right to self-government. Okay. Yeah. Now, technically, this is in the West Bank of the Jordan River, so it's in Jordan. It's on the Gaza Strip, which is also in Jordan, but those are occupied territories that they took. Actually, I think Gaza Strip might be in Lebanon. Um, someone please correct me. Um, in exchange for this, they got the agreement that Egypt would not jump in ever again. So even if all of Egypt's allies jumped in, Egypt would stay out. Because, And if you look at a map, Egypt is a big country, and then you got a bunch of little countries, and then Israel has got another deal thing to deal with on the other side. So they're eliminating a front. They agreed. Uh, and the United States would give both of them lots of aid. Like, as long as y'all don't attack each other, cool. And by the way, they still haven't attacked each other. Like, ever. Like, that. that is a centerpiece of very interesting diplomacy. No matter how bad it's gotten between the two of them, no matter how bad it's gotten between Israel and everyone around them, um, or how bad it's gotten between everyone around them and Israel, depending on your point of view, um, Egypt and Israel have kept the peace. And they're both kind of proud of it. Um, Jimmy Carter doesn't get reelected. Uh, Begin, uh, his party is called Likud. Um, they continued to encourage Israeli settlers in the Gaza Strip and on the West Bank. So even though they said that Palestinians could live there, they're still sending more Israelis to live there. And if if you're, I mean, you know, in American history, we sent a certain type of person west to settle the West. Settle is a wonderful word for invading other people's territory. But it takes a certain type of personality to, to say, yeah, I want to go there. Same thing when you're sending people to these Palestinian, formerly Palestinian territories or formerly Lebanese or um, Jordanian territories to, to go live there. So they continue to send a certain type of person out there. Now, uh, Islamic Jihad is the group that uh, killed uh, Sadat. Um, in October of 1981. Okay, um, Islamic Jihad is a very important group in the history of uh, terrorism that America has had to deal with. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff going on, but also uh, they did this under fatwa. Do you know what a fatwa is? No. Okay, it's a, it's a holy order. Uh, it's basically it's it's a hit. I that's reductive on my part to be honest um but it, it essentially becomes a hit piece right so did you ever hear about um salman rushdie and the satanic verses yes okay so there's a fatwa out for him right so it's essentially you uh by you're not supposed to kill people in islam that's that's bad don't 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 fucking kill people uh but sometimes it's okay to kill people like if there's a fatwa about it then it's like kind of a holy duty to do it you, you ought to um, and, uh, Ed is actually, uh, he teaches middle school, so he's really well-versed on Islam because it's part of the curriculum that he teaches. Uh, I teach high school, so we don't teach so much about religion once the kids are actually capable of understanding another world. Um, so, you know, that, and that's when, that's when we stop teaching it. Um, but, uh, Sadat gets killed by Islamic Jihad. There's a fatwa, uh, that was, um, initiated, I guess I'm going to use. Um, by a guy named Omar Abdel Rahman. Does that name ring any bells? No. Okay. Uh, you remember 9-11? Yes. Do you remember that there was an attack on the World Trade Center prior to 9-11? No. So in 1993, there was a truck bomb uh, in the in the uh, garage basement of uh, the, the World Trade Center uh, that went off. 
1993. Now, 93, that happened, I think, in 94, we had Waco. Might be in 95. There was also Oklahoma. Oklahoma was in 95. I think Waco was 94. Um, you just have bombing after bombing after bombing for a little while in America. And we're like, oh, shit. Uh, but one of the reasons that they thought that Oklahoma was done by Muslim terrorists was because of what happened at the World Trade Center in 93. Well, Rahman was the guy who was behind that attack. Um, Egypt also got kicked out of the Arab League for making... Because remember, the, there was the Khartoum Resolution, right? They got kicked out of the Arab League for that. So all of that in 1981, right? All of this is just happening. There's so many parts. But you ultimately have a peace made between two people that uh, are existing at mutual, mutual exclusivity to each other. Uh, the Palestinians are still not fully recognized, but they even got some recognition. Um, meanwhile, Jim Henson has been filming and editing uh, The Dark Crystal. So the final parts of it are being put together and the studio is wanting to release it when all of this is happening. And then there's a lot more attacks outside of Israel and Palestine too, okay? So now let's look at the movie itself. So I, I, I fed you a lot of water from a water a fire hose, right? Uh, there's a lot going on in uh, in in Israel and Palestine, um, and there's uh, again you had the the philosophy of the 1970s feeding into what he's doing, and you get these two things mixing together, um, and we follow Jen, uh, Jen who is a Gelfling, um, and uh, as I recall, he's the last of his kind, right? Uh, presumably in the beginning, right? Yes. Yeah, and then of course he meets the only other one. Mm -hmm. uh, which turns out they were just one neighborhood away. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, he's been raised by the mystics. You're not the only one who had really long hair when you were younger. So when I was younger, I had really long hair. Uh, really? How long? Um, like, imagine a Irish Jesus that never walked anywhere. So just kind of chubby. But it was like probably down here. Uh, I'm pointing to essentially uh, the mid part of my back. Okay. Um, so pretty long. Stylistic choice? Uh, same in, in some ways. Um, but uh, also, how to put, um, the same reason I have my hair cut the way I have it now is they, they both come from a, a intense love of practicality. Like when I had really long hair, yes, I had to brush it. Yes, I had to shampoo and wash it. But then I would just tie it back and call it good. I never did anything with it or anything like that. Although when I was in high school, there's plenty of girls that would play with it because it was beautiful hair. I had just gorgeous ginger hair. I and, bet. And yeah. Oh, it was, it was lovely. I'll show you my yearbook. I got best hair in my senior year. It was wonderful. <laughs> but uh, what, what do you call it? Um, I had, yeah, I had just, I had really long hair. Um, and uh, I would sometimes, I'd let it down. And every once in a while, if I was hanging out with my friends, with the right friends, I would just let my hair down. I was like, <laughs> it is a lot of fun uh, to the point where a buddy of mine uh, ended up in a uh, what are those schools where they send you away a boarding school right for troubled kids out east in like Connecticut he went there and he did an impression of a mystic and another guy at that school turned to him and goes now this is in Connecticut turned to him and says do you know Damien <laughs> It was weird. Uh, so yeah, my my uh, my bi-coastal mystic impression was was quite something. <laughs> um, now there's only ten of the mystics left too, because as we talked about before, they're the mirror opposites of each other, right? Uh, and then there were nine. 
because <laughs> it starts with by the way did you like the effects of like where his master told him about the 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 crystal shard and he just like pulled it up out of the water um i thought that was some cool shit right there i you know this is a a case of seinfeld is unfunny i just i just yeah. grew up in the wrong time to appreciate uh, okay. how groundbreaking that was and yeah spoiled by by near effects that's fair. No, I'm that's sorry. That's fair. Okay, that's okay. Uh, and also, Seinfeld was unfunny. Um, well, I, I mean, agree. I'm not saying that Seinfeld is unfunny, but you're familiar with the trope. Seinfeld no, is unfunny. No, but I just don't think Seinfeld was very funny. Oh well, Sein- yeah. <laughs> Seinfeld is unfunny is a trope that describes um, the way that we look back on things that were groundbreaking at the time, ah. and they seem cliche to us now because they, they set, set the, the tone. Yeah. yeah, and so they were, you know, so many things were inspired by this source that uh, somebody who wasn't there at, at the inception would think now, like, oh, that's because tired. Was, it was just part of the world that they grew up in. Yes, everything is derived from that. Yes, yeah. So some some people, modern viewers now, kind of look back at Seinfeld and mm-hmm. say, like, look at these these tired jokes, but when right. really everything now is kind of inspired by uh, right. works of the past that's so that, that's the whole trope that's just oh, okay. seinfeld is unfunny oh i just i just thought that that was a true statement hey ed did you hear that she brought up uh, a bunch of tropes too so Ed's, ed like tv tropes? He's, he's the trope machine oh my yeah. god i yeah. okay i never meet anybody else who <laughs> really likes tv tropes oh yeah that's like you know half of our episodes is him pointing out tropes to to stuff like that please so, introduce yeah. us so we can be friends yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> Uh, we'll have you back, uh, and then the two of us will will nerd out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then you'll have the the member of this group that you really wanted to hang out with. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jen's master is the wisest of the mystics. I don't think he had a name. I don't think so. Yeah, they they've they've kind of retconned names. They're all all the mystics' names start with Ur, uh, which I think is kind of interesting because that's where Gilgamesh came from. Kind of cool, yeah. you know. Uh, and all the Skeksis names start with Skek, and then when they combine, they're Urskek. Like, I'm like, okay, now you're not even trying, but cool. <laughs> but uh, he dies right before he dies, though. Do you remember what he tells Jen? Uh, he tells him about the prophecy. Mm-hmm. Gotta get the shard. He's right. gotta go to Agra. Yep. And. Uh, whole time he was raising him he could have prepped him for all this shit yeah and could have taken him there decides to say it all with his dying Definite. breath yeah my my grandma and i went to go see um to go see la bohème mm-hmm. and you know uh the mimi's got her her dying you know so thinking. i've never seen la bohème oh I, okay. I don't know what it is have you seen rent parts of it okay yeah no i saw I think I... I don't know that I saw it all the way through. I think I might have fallen asleep. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's, Sorry. It's based on... Okay. It's based on Love so Yeah. Like, I, I fell asleep right before it got sad. So okay. to me, it's a very cheerful movie. Oh, oops. Well, this is yeah. a mild... Not mild spoiler. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So so Mimi dies in the end, and she's okay. got her big, her big piece. Okay. And... Uh, I'm sitting in the audience with my grandma mm-hmm. and, you know, not a dry eye in the room, except for my grandma, who very loudly says, I thought she was supposed to be dying. Why is she singing so much? <laughs> God <laughs> and, damn it. Anyway, I had the same thought as the master is like with his dying breath saying, oh, yeah, by the way, brrr, yeah. here's <laughs> everything you need to know. Well, you know, you live with purpose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
Um, yeah, so he, he tells him all that. And also that he has to use the shard to heal the dark crystal. Yes, yeah. Which is weird that, like, there was no chipping off or no rounding out after, like, just slide it in. It'll all work perfectly again. The seams will line up. It'll... Okay. Um, terrible sex ed talk. That's not how oh, it works oh in real Lord. life. Yeah, no. <laughs> you gotta push it in multiple times. Just... Need some, some lube, some yeah. assistance. You gotta try it from the other end. Like, all of it. You know, you just <laughs> stroke it around the side. It just, yeah. Make it go... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> Not so much. Huh? Oh no! All right, no. all right. Well, because if you look at the color of the essence, it's you know. Uh huh. Anyway. Okay. So, yeah. Yes, well, he he. You know, someone thought it would be a good idea to drink it, and then it turns out it was not a good idea. I thought it gave life. Uh, uh, this might be just a gender divide thing. <laughs> You know, I fooled myself into thinking that it's life-giving, <clears throat> but and good for people. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, we don't teach sex ed in California anymore. So this might be people's only exposure to that. We don't teach sex ed in California. No, well, I think they just put it back into the biology uh, framework, actually. So, okay. which is good because biologists ought to know how that shit works. Yeah, I used um, to hold mm-hmm. secret sex ed classes when i was a biology teacher oh wow oh because you taught in texas though i did teach in texas yeah okay yeah there were two times when we had to shut the blinds and that was for sex ed and Mm -hmm. evolution oh my god (laughs) oh my god oh god damn it and like okay so like my my i've got this weird fascination with calgary canada alberta specifically right Uh, so calgary is where um the the hart family came from Uh, big wrestling town okay um, and somebody pointed out to me, they're like, Damien, you do realize that that's the Texas of Canada. And I was so disappointed. Like, that's how much antipathy I have for Texas and education in Texas. Yeah, well-deserved. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Well, so we've got the hero's journey, right? Yes. Now that I'm thoroughly depressed. Um, but there's also the Skeksis too, right? There's 10 of them. And then there were nine. Uh, oddly, at the exact same time that the old man Mystic dies, the old man Skeksis dies, right? And he's the emperor. Which is interesting. You've got an emperor and then you've got like just a kind of first among equals, you know. And then there's a struggle of power, right? Uh, which is, uh, did you did you understand the trial by stone? Like, to me, it was fucked up. It didn't seem fair. No, it, it's, it was really silly. It yeah. was basically Jenga. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> But like, it, but you win when it topples. <clears throat> right, right. But it, the thing is, you definitely want to hit tw- the second time then, because if the other guy hits it and loosens it, then you're like, oh, I got this, and then you get to be emperor. Like, it's true. It's yeah. kind of like who wins the coin toss in a football game, you know? Like, ooh, why, why play then? So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, they they have the struggle for power, and then Chamberlain loses. Um, again, why did he think that like? Because he got to choose, right? Because General said challenge is a trial by stone. Yeah. Why would you, if you're physically weaker, choose the the one thing that like relies on physical strength, and then you have to go first? Like none of that. Well, I mean, clearly he didn't have the brains to be the true leader. Apparently not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, he gets banished. He gets stripped too. That was a really uncomfortable scene for me. Yeah. Because they all kind of just mobbed him. Mob him and yeah. they're ripping off his clothes while he says, please, no. And yeah. I, I felt very uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of uncomfortability to it. Uh, and then Jen meets the thickest girl in all of Thra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she's got the shard. That's not all she's got. Oh, that's right. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, she needs to tell him about the Great Conjunction for reasons. Yeah. Oh, because you have to heal the, the crystal before the Great Conjunction. Yes, yeah. Because if not, I don't know what happens. Uh, the end of the world. Yeah, end, end, of the, end yeah. and the Skeksis stay in power Oh, right. Forever. Right. Yeah, it's it's like they, they have free agency until then, and then they sign the contract. You know? Yeah. Like, um, she's, she's odd. Uh, she's eclectic. She's erratic. Um, but she's obviously wise. She's very, very smart. Um, she is the old person that helps the hero on his journey. Um, right before she can tell him what he has to do, of course, and he plays music through like the most impractical flute that there is. Um, and uh, of course she's being crazy and weird the whole time. And then she goes to tell him everything. And then suddenly agents of the Skeksis invade and it's the Gartham. Cool thing though, uh, she stops them. Like she gets in their way and they're like, oh shit, we can't touch her. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Uh, but then they burn her shit down anyway. Um, now the mystics hear the call of the dark crystal, right? Um, which originally, I guess it was like a television for the Skeksis, right? Cause they, don't they see? They, okay. So they saw when Jen picked up the crystal, like mm. when he kind of like activated it uh-huh. and they saw through the crystal bats. Right. Oh yeah. yeah the crystal bats. Cause they are like satellites for the crystal. Yes. Okay. That's right. Um, and, uh, they see that he's going to try to heal it and they don't want that to happen because they stay in power if it doesn't. Um, the mystics start their long and really slow journey, really, really slow (laughs) journey. Like the whole reason it's slow is because it's a plot. Like we, we can only have them show up at the very end and the whole time they're just like, they're the most interesting, uninteresting group that there ever was. Like, all they do is just walk. That's it. They're like the ants of the Dark Crystal, you know? Well, and if they get there too early, are they just going to, like, sit around and... <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's oh. like... <laughs> They're like tube and throat singers. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they start the really slow journey to Skeksis Castle. Jen goes through a really neat swamp. I liked it. Uh, he meets the only other one of his kind. Lucky him. Yeah. Um, they dream fast, which was, I thought, cool. That was, so it was confusing uh-huh. narratively, I thought. But mm-hmm. I liked how it, uh, so we've got the parallels between the mm-hmm. Skeksis and the Mystics. Right. And I kind of like the symmetry also of uh-huh. them uh, and their overlapping experiences. And yeah. And cutting back and forth between their stories, which are both very similar as if it were happening to each of them at the same time. That's true. Yeah. Kinda. That thought that was interesting. I like that. I like that. Also, um, he is he is learned and she is natural. So you have books and you have nature. So you have these two aspects of still wisdom, right? Whereas yeah. the Skeksis, like the 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 mystics and and the the Gelflings are like uh, Ravenpuff, and the Skeksis <laughs> are are Slytherin. Well, uh, Hufflepuff. 
because um, they yeah they're, they're like the worst kind of Hufflepuff but they're also very Slytherin yes you know? yes uh, just all the worst parts um, so yeah they, they do that they hang out with the her adopted people the pod people yeah uh, who are just fun as shit have really cool stringed instruments um, their house that, that, that great hall that they were celebrating in that's actually very similar to what the Fraggles lived in okay, okay. so yeah might have used the same sets I don't know um, they love music uh, the Gartham attack again, uh, and they have that cool kind of clicky sound when they do their when they get in, and it's like a little whistle underneath it. Yeah. Uh, Kira and Jen flee. One of them gets wounded. She uses moss to heal him. Yes. Um, the Gelflings uh, run into the ruins the very next day because it's an eighty minute movie, so we got to. Well, and that's where he checks the shard too. Right. So there's that plot device of like we got to go find the shard. Oh yeah, and that takes him to the ruins, yeah. which again he'd never seen, and she'd never seen, despite the fact that they were both like one street over from it. Uh, he says my favorite line in the whole thing though. He says, "Oh, that's writing." And she's like, "What's that?" And he says, "Words that stay." I was like. That's cool. Like, every once in a while, there's, like, a real good, uh, you know, nugget there. Um, they run into Chamberlain, right? Because he saves them from the Gartham. Yes. Um, and he explains to them in his whiny sing-song voice about the prophecy. Yes. Right? Um, well, and, it's yeah. specifically that the prophecy was the um, motivation for killing all the gelflings right that's right um and he tells them that he wants to be the peacemaker yes right and yes. He, he tells them it's because he's an outcast like he folds the truth into a lie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then uh so so far we got hero's journey we've got an exile trying to get back in the good graces of those that uh exile him um there's a clear delineation between good and evil there's a karmic bond between that good and evil um, and you have a crazy lady with a removable eye who knows more than she'll ever tell anyone. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, she gets kidnapped too, right? Yeah. And, so like I thought at uh, first that she had died because right. Jen looks mournfully over his shoulder at her house, which is on fire and yes. goes, Agra. And then you cut to her later at the Skeksis and she's like, fuck you guys. <laughs> fuck you guys. The girlfling's coming. Y'all right. are all dead. Yep. Don't and, fucking touch me. <laughs> <laughs> and at one point, doesn't she even say, you know, you could have you could have asked me for help, but it was easier to send your crab brain soldiers instead. Yeah. And they burn my shit down. Yeah. It's she like so that. she kinda like was like, yo, I could have I could have helped you with this guy. And then she she like <laughs> as she's talking to them, there's some sort of ornament, some little metal vase or something uh-huh. on the table, and she just kind of goes, hmm, pockets it. Oh my god, you're <laughs> Shit That's right. There. And she does her squat. Yeah. And and, and one of the the the, the Skeksis, and they're eating and it's gross. Um and one of them goes, Oh, how crude. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um now Jen is destined to heal the crystal before the Great Conjunction when all the signs suns line up, right? There's three suns. Three suns. Yeah. yeah. Uh he ends up doing it, but only after they kill Kira right in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and once he does it, though, the Gartham literally fall apart. They just do, you know. Uh, yeah. I think the uh, the castle falls apart too. The castle, it's so like the castle kind of um, it like sheds its exoskeleton, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah, and it's, becomes like a white castle now. Yeah, and and Harold Kumara are there. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, he, it. it uh, they were bringing Skeksis back, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah, and then the podlings whose essence the Skeksis were draining uh, forever regain their essence. I guess it drains back into them somehow. I I guess they're... It's weird snowballing, but, you know, cool. Yeah, yeah. They look like they were, you know, coming back. Back at it, full yeah. Full potato. And the whole castle, like I said, you know, it, it hit full potato. God damn it. <laughs> I like that phrase. That's going to be an album title. Um, and so... And meanwhile, the mystics, who have been thoroughly divorced from the plot this whole time, show up right at the end to fulfill whatever shit Jim Henson thought he was getting out of uh, Roberts' book. Um, Because they get to the castle, and they line up behind their counterpart, Skeksis. And and I think at that point there's only eight of them, because one of them got dropped in the fire. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and one of them poofs up. Now, when I watched that with my daughter... At the time, I think she was five or six. She turned to me. She's like, oh, every time one thing happens to them, it happens. Because another one got stabbed in the hand, hand. right? uh And she figured that out. So good job, Jim Henson. My my daughter figured it out. That was good. Um, So I think there's only eight of them left. And this is where it all comes together. And it's like a fucking Mel Brooks movie in that nobody knows how to write an ending for Mel Brooks movies either. Uh, the only there's only been a few that have had good endings. Most of the time it's just like and we're done. But like that's kind of what happens with this one. Um, Jen repairs the dark crystal. He makes the heart of Thra whole again. Okay. Um, the mystics and the Skeksis combine to become pure beings of light. There's our transcendental lighter selves, a higher purpose, a higher plane, a higher self. Um, they become one again, right? Uh, these two karmically linked races become their true high selves. And then they leave Thra for the Gelflings with a healed crystal. Like, they go away. And they're these weird-ass creatures. Like, you can kind of see aspects of each. Yeah. But it's like the ugliest combination you could come up with, you know? Um, the castle, like it, like you said, it loses its carapace. Um, its true form... Its crystalline form uh, obviates itself again. The dead valley and wasteland that it had been set in the middle of um, that had become Thra is immediately verdant and and fertile again. Um, And that's the trick. It's that again. It had previously been, and then it went through a wasteland phase, and now the crystal has been healed. The heart of the planet has been healed so that everything is whole again. And it's no longer used for dominating people, but instead it's used for healing people. And everything becomes its own truer, higher version of itself. Yeah, they they call it the crystal of truth after it's been healed, not the dark crystal anymore. That's right. So there's your new age shit, right? Yes. That's that's LSD. <laughs> uh, both of which Hansen, uh, Hansen, Hansen, why do I keep saying that? Mm-bop. Oh, yeah, that's because Chamberlain. Chamberlain. We need mm-hmm. to have... Mm-hmm. Bop, yes. yes, that's two of them we need now. <laughs> uh, but Henson didn't know much about LSD or the New Age stuff. So he's pulling from things that he doesn't know much about and putting it in. Now, here's the geopolitical version. Okay, Here's where it, it all gets depressing again. Uh, but I have no reason to believe that he knew very much about it. He was a puppeteer and he was very involved in his work all the time. But again, this is what's going on at that time. Um Uh, it's the water that we swim in, as Ed is fond of saying. Um, Israel and Palestine had been suggested to have a two-state solution as early as 1974. By 1975, the PLO, 
the Palestinian Liberation Organization, accepted it as a talking point in 1975. That's the same year that he's writing this. Now, again, I don't think he's looking at it going, two-state solution, all right, uh, mystics and Skeksis. And, no, but what the movie's saying, what it's drawing on, is the same idea that once Palestinians and Israelis realize that they're part of the same land, that much of what is dry and cracked, but what's, what once was lush and verdant, once they realize that they're basically the same people, the ones in power will merge with the ones that are out of power. And once they stop retaliating against each other, and once they stop living in two different realities, and they start blending the realities again, and they blend the states of Palestine and Israel, that they will see the light. And they themselves will be the light in the region, and peace will reign. That's, that's holy book stuff. That's a reunification stuff. That's um, a lot of people's hopes. In the most basic terms, the combination of Skeksis and mystics uh, is that they become angels. I have a problem with this, again, because when you have the Skeksis and the uh, mystics, you have clearly a super chill group that's not bad and a group that's evil as shit. And I don't think either the Israelis or the Palestinians are that. Agreed. But I would also think, I would also say that both at that time saw each other as the opposite. They saw themselves as mystics and they saw the other guy as Skeksis. Now, not in those terms, because, again, that's not... That's not how these things work. But that's how their image of the other group was. And what they weren't doing was unifying. What they weren't doing was coming together to come up with this. But when they combine, they become literally our better angels. Um, it's a image that is dreamed up in the whirlpool of culture that included psychedelic drugs, New Age philosophy, and Israel and Palestine's constant conflict with each other. Sadat and Begin, we'll go back to those guys, their peacemaking was proof positive that that hope existed at the time that they're editing and writing and rewriting and screenwriting this, this movie. Peace could be had in that region of the world. These guys were proof of it. There's a wonderful picture of Jimmy Carter putting his hand over Sadat and Begin's as they are shaking hands. And they're smiling, genuine fucking smiles. They've brought peace. The optimism that Henson approached his movie couldn't help but be influenced by what was in the news around him at that time. Now, having said that, he also saw the conflict, which was constantly had rays of hope within it, but against a backdrop of horrible retaliatory violence and wicked oppression. And, and he was still looking through a lens of hope because I think ultimately that's his personality. I don't think it was just the turtlenecks. Um, I think that um, he he really was a hopeful guy. Now, um, I found a wonderful article written by a person named Amy Knight uh, called Big Henson Energy. <laughs> and I got her permission for this. Okay, I, I reached out to her and, and she, she writes for a living, so she's got really good quotes because that's what she does for a living. I just translate dead languages and tell kids what already happened. I don't do anything original. Um, quote, uh, and this is a quote from Jim Henson that showed up in her article. Quote, I've always tried to present a... I should... I kind of want to do a Henson impersonation because he, he talked a little bit more like this. But I, I don't because I, I think that... But there's a part of me that does. My, my lesser angel. I'll, I'll hear it that way. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Everybody turn on your Henson filter. 
Um, I've always tried to present a positive view of the world in my work. It's so much easier to be negative and cynical and predict doom for the world than it is to try and figure out how to make things better. We have an ob- we have an obligation to do the latter. Okay. I think as dark as the dark crystal was, as uh, as just it's just it's it's seventy five minutes of sad and then oh and then it's light and it's better, which I think is one of the big problems I have with the movie, quite honestly. But it does he does pull optimism through the whole thing. It is a through line, and I think he living at a time where all this shit's happening in the background, living through the Great Malays, living through OPEC and all this horrible shit, terrorism everywhere hijackings are in the news and all that i think he still has a lot of hope i mean that's why he's doing you know sesame street at that time that's why he's making this movie in july of 2017 uh there was a um uh whatchamacallit a a tumblr user um i think this is before they banned uh pornography on tumblr okay which um, you have what views you want on it, but when they did that, they, they used a broadsword, not a scalpel. And so anything that and in any way resembled erotica, they got rid of, which like there's a whole bunch of fan fiction out there that's just gone, yeah. which is a damn shame. But there was a Tumblr user named uh, Ariaste, uh, which was uh, fantasy author Alexandra Rowland. Um, she coined the term hope punk. Um, and this is, again, all of this is uh, quotes from uh, Amy Knight's article. Um, it's a storytelling trend, an ideological stance, and a big mood that means, quote, kindness and softness doesn't equal weakness. Roland believes that, quote, in this world of brutal cynicism and nihilism, being kind is a political act, an act of rebellion. That's July of 2017. That's six, seven months after uh, a certain circus peanut uh, fascist uh, takes over and immediately starts trying to ban people from this country and the cruelty becomes the point. Back to uh, Ms. Knight. Uh, The way Henson saw things was inherently silly. He used Muppets to make statements, usually soft, fuzzy Muppets with many human flaws. But, quote, any silliness was always tempered with overarching notes of respect and empathy. And in this way, Henson was subversively earnest and earnestly subversive. I love that flip. Again, this is what happens when you have somebody who's a writer for a living. Um, Now, I think, this is back to me, the Dark Crystal used so little of that silliness. um, And yet, on its most basic level, it's really quite ridiculous. Um... And he used it to explain, without meaning to, New Ageism, LSD, and the Israel-Palestine conflicts, and the violence, using puppets. He was expressing it, maybe not explaining it, but he was expressing it. He valued the individual's ability to make the world a better place. Uh, But more importantly, he valued a team's ability to make the world safe for an individual to be strong enough to make it a better place. Jen didn't get there on his own. He had a support network the whole way. And that's really the point of the Dark Crystal, is that we're all in this together, and for the hero to make his journey, he's got to have this support network so that he's safe enough to make that journey. And in that journey, he fulfills the world being a better place. Uh, This was in the face of what uh, I've listed so many times, she says. Uh, He truly valued diversity of approach and saw that as an ultimate good. Um, 
she says, quote, these themes, embracing dynamic and group-oriented diversity and its benefits, could be written off as a typical territory for kids' media, but Henson's creepier, more adult-oriented films, The Dark Crystal and The Labyrinth, still hinge on the resilient power of community over venal individualism. I'm going to break quote for a second. Mystics versus Skeksis. Back to her. Why do we discredit stories about cooperation as being lessons only children need to learn? Knight goes on to point out that being hopeful is a gamble. And it's doing it in such a way that Henson was a master at it. Quote, gambling on hope is a tough gig, but someone's got to do it. Um, philosophies like hope punk help me think that pop cultural tide is turning. Carrying cynics out to sea. Returning with a treasure trove of wholesome memes and buoyant themes. I just That's a really good name for a group too. Wholesome memes and buoyant themes. Quote, when I feel bitter about the swath of serial killer biopics doing the rounds, I watch the latest Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance trailer, uh, and feel connected to all these kindred strangers, preserving, furthering Jim Henson's vision. The Dark Crystal was the project he felt most proud of. It's certainly the most hope punk in the Roland's fan- fantastical sense. Okay. Um, and I'm going to do a whole episode probably on the Age of Resistance because it's absolutely about living under Trump and stuff like that. Um, but I do love that she also picked up on the the through line of optimism and hope through the Dark Crystal, even in the new one. And in, in some ways, more explicitly stated in the new one. There's brighter colors and all kinds of stuff. Some of that is new technology you know, versus the 1970s and 80s. Now, she wasn't exactly connecting Henson's hope punk attitudes to drugs and New Age thinking uh, or to the Israel-Palestine conflict like I was. Um, but that's why I'm doing this and she's doing what she's doing. But she did note that the qualities that he pulled from it, quote, Henson had the luxury of believing that we create our own reality and that everything works out for the best because he moved through his world with a myriad of privileges, uh, several of which I share, others I don't. Uh, I resent not being born with those that might help me make that dent that Jim, de- that Jim did. So I love the optimism that she pulls out of even the Dark Crystal. Um, because at the end, the hero does win, and it does work, and, and it brings Kira back to life. Fiskig is saved. Agra gets to live. The 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 mystics and Skeksis problem just obliterates itself, and we're left with the goodness. The, the pod people come back. Potatoes are going to potato. It's all good. Um, I think when this movie came out, there was an upsurge in um, optimism about the Israeli-Palestine conflict because Sadat and Begin had made peace. Um, I think that the hopelessness that a lot of people felt in the 70s was starting to come out and new ageism and drugs were part of that. Uh, unfortunately, then we got into consumerism and but just because he wasn't necessarily correct about all the things doesn't mean that he wasn't right in thinking that so that's that's basically what i've got on on the dark crystal and on uh jim henson and and the time in which he did his thing um so having quoted an excellent author having talked about all these movies um or this movie and and all these things uh what's your takeaway what's what have you got what is my takeaway from jim henson 
all of this, yeah. Uh, Henson, how he approached it, uh, whether whether or not you think this had anything to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict, um, all that kind of stuff. Like, wh- what do you think? Um, well, you mentioned that maybe Jin Henson hadn't gotten it correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the ideal is the point, then uh, correctness almost isn't. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I do like the idea, uh, especially nowadays of, of hope and kindness being a a type of rebellion, um, because things are, um, dark and mean right now under this administration and, uh, and it does feel kind of like America's kind of just eating it up right now. Yeah, there's a lot of people reveling in their skexis nature. Yeah, and and, you know? and you try to point out some of the stuff and why it's wrong, and it just kind of falls on deaf ears. Yeah, or they, they're like, you're damn right, and that's yeah. why I'm proud. And it's like, how, how, how are you reviling in in that? Yeah. Yeah, um, not, not that I uh, support Mike Bloomberg, but he did release a good ad that kind of... Uh, had clips of Donald Trump saying things and then clips of like 1980s bullies. Oh yeah. yeah. And going back and forth and just kind of showing those parallels. Um, So hope punk and kindness of being rebellion is something that feels really poignant now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of something we need to vouchsafe something we need to kind of protect. Yeah. Um, And also grow like that's, I think that's kind of implied in what she's talking about. Like, you know, I, I, I don't have the advantages he did, and I resent that I don't get to make the dent that Jim made. Um, but he was a very self-actualizing and admitted he didn't get th- get things uh, kind of guy, and he he kept hoping. Like, to me, he hoped almost obliviously, and in so doing that, he pulled people into that bubble. Um, whereas what I'm seeing now, uh, with what she's talking about with the age of resistance, for instance, with, um, with what hope is now, it's almost like this, uh, aggressive resilience of hope of just like, oh no, you're not going to knock me down. You know, I'm, I'm going to keep hoping like it's a defiant hope. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, well, cool. Well, um, is there anything that you'd like to plug this week? Uh, do you have any trivia stuff coming up? Um, I do. Um, well, I mean, every every Tuesday mm-hmm. at Yellow Brewing. Um, also, well, I don't have an exact date. I'm not sure I'm doing it, so it's, it's not quite a plug. Okay. I am doing a. <laughs> I'm doing a, well. <laughs> I'm doing a, a burlesque cello act. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> yeah. I'm nice. gonna get in my underwear and play the prelude to Fox Cello Suites. <laughs> wow. That'll be late March at Yellow Brewing. Um, oh, fantastic. I hope that's not like the same night that uh, I'm doing my show. What day is that? Well, okay. So uh, I, I will, while you're plugging, um, I will plug uh, Capital Punishment is returning to the Sacramento Punchline on March 22nd at 7 p.m. Uh, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, and we're going to have some of the funniest punsters uh, in all of Sacramento. Uh, and, uh, it's, we've even got one coming up from San Francisco who's on Sketchfest with us this year. So do you know when your thing is? Yeah, it's, it's March 27th and 28th. Thank God. Yeah. Okay. Oh no, I'm not missing that um, show. Yeah. I'm there for that. That's, oh my God. <laughs> I need to 
see if I can get a babysitter or something. Um, oh, that's fantastic. What I, I assume you play cello? I do. Okay. Um, and this is kind of like a tentative agreement. I told the director uh-huh. uh, I have to <laughs> I have to dust off my cello and, and practice a little before I formally agree to do this. But it's it's uh, in pencil right now in the works. I love that. Like you're you're like yeah I'm gonna do this burlesque cello thing, and you're worried about the cello part. The burlesque part that's not even a concern to you. No, as much as the cello part is. Yeah, you know with like I just figure. I've come I've come to terms with my body. I've got what I got. I'm pretty comfortable. You know, burlesque is a very celebratory of all body types, too. Yeah, so, and, and like, that, too. In some ways, it's a safer space. Yeah, um, I feel like I'm coming into a good environment. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything else for fear of sounding creepy. So, <laughs> uh, But, God, that sounds so fun. Yeah, that's, I think it's yeah. going to be fun. Oh, but, that's you know, great. between uh, doing the punch show for the first time. That's right. You're on Capital Punishment in. Was it February? Or? Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this month, and then and doing burlesque next month, and being on this podcast. I'm just yeah. full of uh, doing things that terrify me lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do it well. Um, cool. Uh, is there anywhere on social media uh, that you would like people to know that you exist? Yeah. Speaking of uh, being comfortable with what I've got, my Instagram handle <laughs> is datashdo. D A T period A S H period D O H. That is my Instagram handle. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Uh, you can find me at Duh Harmony, two H's. Um, Duh, then, and then Harmony. Uh, on the Twitter and on um, the Insta. Uh, you can also find us, uh, you can find uh, my, my erstwhile partner, Ed Blaylock, um, at E H Blaylock. Uh, you can also find us both at um, Geek History Time on the Twitter. Uh, and um, please drop us a line. Let us know what we got right, what we got wrong. Uh, let me know if you think that I completely butchered uh, Ms. Knight's article and, and did it wrong. Um, and again, thanks you, uh, thank you, uh, Amy Knight, for letting me use your article. Um, and uh, yeah, please let us know if you want us to, to talk about other things, if you have questions about uh, Ashley's burlesque. Um, we'll try to be a conduit for that. Uh, and oh man, that's exciting. I'm excited for you. That's, uh, I'm, I'm more excited about the cello, um, than, than the other thing. Uh, probably because I've seen enough burlesque that I'm like, how is a cello going to work with that? I, I don't know. We'll find out together. Oh, that's going to be rad. (laughs) Oh man. Cool. Well, uh, for uh, a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm Ashley Sanders. And, uh, Ooh, I was going to say keep your crystals dark, but that's not how the movie went at all. Uh, no, uh, we... live your crystal truth. Oh, 